Breakers and welcome to episode number 28 of Project Studio Tea Break. I am Mike Senior and I am here with a man who measures in at a massive 1.237 micro beebers of TikTok likability. <laughs> oh. Yes, it's John Whitten. Wow, we're starting early with the shade today. That's, that is brutal. And also, I mean, that, this was going to be my follow up. This was going to be how I opened it. But you know what? Given how things are sitting, which mm. I'm sure you'll be getting into, Mike, I'm going to let you have this one. I'm going to say that you go ahead and spread the quote unquote happy news. Well, I mean, as people will have seen, the TikTok statistics have uh-huh. slightly turned around since last time. <laughs> Look, I haven't had much of a fall in my fate, but something truly meteoric has happened. A seismic shift in our relative popularities. Okay, so Breakers, much to Mike's chagrin, I'm going to start with my own stats, because you know what? They're respectable. Mm. Team Jonas, Team Iron Audi, Team Beauty and Truth, mm. we're doing just fine. We're up to 60 likes. Yes. As like six or seven more than last time. Mm-hmm. It's great. I'm really happy with this. And, you know, the content that we're making is honest. Yeah. And it's valuable to our communities. And, and for me, anyway, <laughs> that's what it's all about. Mm. 60 likes. All right. <laughs> Mike. It hurts to say. Mm. Mike, you're sitting as of this moment of recording at 129 likes. Wow. More than double that of your closest competitor, PSTBTX. How does that feel? I have to say it does feel good because I was desperate to turn it around before I posted last month's episode. (laughs) I can tell. But, oh God, it was a close run thing. It was so close under the wire, it was ridiculous. And I tried everything. Honestly, I I will admit I played dirty. (laughs) I pulled out all the stops. I posted a cat video, for heaven's sakes. You did! (laughs) 153 views at time of recording. But, you see, what turned it around for me in the end was that I had a deep spiritual revelation. Mm -hmm. You see... I finally learned the value of videos of angsty teenagers emoting over an acoustic guitar. You see, because the guitar is usually clearly visible in the video and you can see that pained expression on their face, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all you have to do is put on one of your favourite albums. So I sat down there and put Royal Blood on the stereo, full blast, took my earbuds out, opened up TikTok... (laughs) <laughs> scrolled through until I found the teenager emoting angstily over their acoustic guitar and then just follow, like, swipe, follow, like, swipe. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you can get through about 300 in the space of your average Royal Blood album oh. and completely without listening to any of them. <laughs> so I have found a use for one of the great untapped resources of the internet. I'm going to need you to actually unfollow one person, Mike, because <laughs> because Mike is currently following 1,235 different <laughs> accounts. Absolutely. <laughs> Independent accounts. Now, just a quick bit of math. If you can get through, as you just said, a good 300 in a single album listen, that's over four album listens of just, just looking at floppy-haired teens yeah. having feelings at a guitar. Mm. The reason, of course, I do need you to unfollow one person is that then it would be one, two, three, four. <laughs> and, and the fact that it's one, two, three, five at the moment is driving me completely mad. Just for you, John. 
And of course, the great thing is that to start off with, it's not very efficient. Right. Because you're going through and you're getting lots of, you know, people jumping off their tower block or doing Fortnite demonstrations and things. <laughs> but of course, the more you like and the more you follow the angsty acoustic guitarists, the more of them they suggest. Right, it figures out what you're into. Not only did I pwn you, John, but I pwned TikTok's algorithm as well. <laughs> <laughs> And this frequent and hugely inappropriate use of the term poning does also relate to your most liked video, that little message that you've popped up right at the top of your channel. Well, you challenged me. Mm -hmm. You know, I was determined to do the things you challenged me to do. So I did the fitness video. Yes, you did. But you also said I should put some of my own music up. Mm. And I was struggling to find inspiration. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I thought, well... Why not a celebratory ode to Poning John in four-part harmony? <laughs> this moment of joy. So just for a quick visual picture, um, what we've got here is a video of not one, two, nor three mics, but four mics arranged a la Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> singing a song and doing, I'm not joking, doing a synchronised dance routine to it mm. as well, which was, that was the moment of commitment where I thought to myself, not only has he done this, he's earned this. He's earned this. <laughs> and the shame that I'm feeling is his sweet and richly deserved reward. However, all is not despair and defeat. Okay. Because I have a massive silver lining in the form of a new patron. A new patron. Welcome, new patron. <laughs> Hello, David. Hello. Maybe you should adopt this new patron as your new TikTok patron saint <laughs> to, to give new life into your TikTok campaign. Well, wait a, wait a minute. You haven't told me the important thing about David yet. David, <laughs> I'm excited to have you. It's brilliant to have you here. But I don't know if we're like friends yet because Mike hasn't told me yet how you feel about the composer I actually woke up to today. Well... You will be even more pleased mm. that he has evened up the tally at three all oh. by voting on your side of the debate. David, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the PSTV family. Welcome to Team John. Uh, welcome to my arms. Welcome to my arms. Even though this is literally the opposite of, I think, how you're meant to do hashtags, I'm going to change my hashtag now <laughs> from Team Nick to Team Davik. Yeah. Um, D-A-V-I-K, because... You know, Nick and me are still tight. Well, of course. Um, he even sent me a message about misspelling his name in the hashtag. <laughs> I've had a lot of versions of my hashtag at this point. <laughs> hey, Nick. <laughs> well, seeing as you mentioned Nick, I also had an email from him. Oh, yeah? Yep, yep. Tell me more, tell me more. Uh, and I quote, Oh, you guys, brackets, Though I suspect I'm mostly looking at you, Mike, which I have to say, I'm, it's guilty as charged. Yeah, well, let's hear the rap sheet. The thing about playing podcasts at multiples of real time is that podcast players preserve the pitch. And that was what I was on about. Not you two as trolls. Although that was quite amusing in its own right. I still feel like our version is more interesting. And that if podcast players don't have that ability to just play back the waveform faster than they, they should do. Well, you say that. But oh yeah, he sent us an example of the real thing. Okay. And here it is. Yes, please. You know that Queen Victoria story, don't you, about the finger bones? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Although I didn't realise it was Queen Victoria. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, we sound totally stoned on that one. It's just outrageous. I disagree. I think we are octogenarian country club members <laughs> sitting in old, overstuffed red leather chairs on the fourth brandy before lunch. Welcome to PSTV number 1375. <laughs> I 
didn't realise it was Queen Victoria. Oh, my God. Oh, very good. Glimpsed into our future, Mike. (laughs) Thank you so very, very much for that, Nick. Now, lockdown has been a sad time for the arts, with the restrictions dramatically reducing attendance at all types of cultural events. Yeah. But it has forced established institutions now to broaden their appeal and look outside their existing audience base. Mm -hmm. And so it is that I bring you news of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City, who is leading the field... (laughs) By recently hosting a private exhibition for their local penguins. (laughs) Giving rise to possibly the most adorable YouTube video I've seen this year. (laughs) Cute little stripy penguins waddling about this impressively marbled (laughs) art gallery with fine art on the walls. They're adorable. I, I feel like it's our job in this segment of this podcast to kind of offer as much as we can different angles and and try to add value, add interest. (laughs) I'm just not convinced that that's possible here. Like, (laughs) there are penguins wandering around an art gallery. That's it. That's amazing. Well, in which case, let me give the floor to Randy Wisthoff. Please, anytime. The visibly smirking executive director of Kansas City (laughs) Zoo, who said, We're always looking for ways to enrich their lives and stimulate their days. And during this shutdown period, our animals really miss having people come out and see them. We were happy to visit, and the penguins absolutely loved it. (laughs) The executive director of the museum added, These are Peruvian penguins, so we are speaking a bit in Spanish. Oh, my God. And they really appreciated art history. Oh, my God. They definitely seemed to react much better to Caravaggio than to Monet. (laughs) (laughs) And there are so many questions. The first one, right at the top of my mind, has to be, how the hell can you tell that penguins are appreciating art history or absolutely (laughs) loving anything? I mean, surely penguins are the most inscrutable of creatures ever. I mean, that was the reason why a penguin was the baddie in the wrong trousers. Oh, you're right. Gosh, that film gave me nightmares as a kid. How do you read the emotions of a penguin? (laughs) Oh, his beaks turning up at the edges. I mean, maybe this is a specialist thing. I think in real life, outside of the visual nightmare that is the wrong trousers, Mm. I think it's easy to read emotion from a penguin. Oh, right. And the emotion that you read from a penguin is light-hearted jollity and buffoonish... Uh, noun Charlie Chaplin-esque japery it's this sort of dopey happy-go-lucky waddle yeah now I'm not convinced they can communicate any other emotion or cease to communicate that one (laughs) Um, well I mean I think that's part of the joy of the video (laughs) so my question is less how do they appreciate art that seems straightforward but how do they communicate disapproval of art Yeah, with their perennially sunny dispositions. I mean, if they're just judging it by whether they approached one picture and looked at it or the next, I mean, that could have as much to do with the usher having a fish paste sandwich in his pocket <laughs> as it is to do with anything that Monet has to offer. Fair, but maybe that's just a deeper statement about curation and art. I remember being taken to art galleries and museums as a small child, and one of my least favourite things was that I spent most of the time staring at the wall. These things are hung to be an eyeline of grown-ups. I got a great view of the shoes whoever was in the painting was wearing, and literally nothing else. 
And I think penguins might be able to empathise with that. They are not flamingos. They're not ostriches. That is true. And I worry that they may have just been checking out the plastering on the wall. They fancied that bit of the bottom of the frame more. Yes, there you go. <laughs> the the nameplates yeah, yeah. are what really got the critical appraisal. And actually, I think it would have increased the appeal of the video if they'd had elevated walkways for them as well. <laughs> <laughs> God, some people are just never happy. They've had them on mini cherry pickers. You put penguins in an art gallery and some people just want raised walkways. But it also raises other questions. You see, this is why I brought it up in the news. It's like, can we as musicians take advantage of a similar market? Okay, tell me more. I mean, should we be seeing concerts in zoos and, and aquaria and things? I mean, supposedly the interspecies infection possibilities are, are reduced. So if you choose your audience well, there could be this un- untapped market for gigs in uh, wildlife parks and uh... there is a youtube video that i don't even need to look up to tell you its name it's called <laughs> i play trombone for my cows and... <laughs> oh that's lovely <laughs> what it features is a trombonist standing in an empty field mm. nothing else visible they start to play and these dots appear on the horizon <laughs> Which gradually grow until they are surrounded by cows. And it's just one of the most wonderfully heartwarming things. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, he's a pioneer. He's leading the charge. We can all learn something from this man. Completely. I play guitar to my budgie. It's, it's, there's all sorts of possibilities. Yes. There are as many as there are instruments and animals. So what animals, what subset of the zoological population do you think would most appreciate, you know, your style of music, Mike? Ooh. This kind of 30 years out of date noise that... I was going to say, they'd have to be quite old, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> to get the nostalgia vote. Galapagos turtles. Yeah, and then maybe I get the crossover, they'd bring their kids with them. <laughs> yes, there you go. In the pouch. <laughs> For the next generation. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Maybe I could increase the appeal if I just changed the speed I played it back. Okay. You know, I could go for the whale market by slowing it down. <laughs> or hit, hit the bats and the dogs by speeding it up. <laughs> I mean, finally, this is finally the justification we need for extended sample rates. They were never useful before. But now this is the burgeoning insect music market that we're going for now. I mean, at the risk of calling back to a previous episode, this was exactly what those farmers were doing by playing Barry White to flies. But it bears repeating, you know? Barry White saw this coming. Farmers saw this coming. Mm. And now now we've got to get with the times mm. and see if, you know, antelopes like funk. But, you know, I think we may still be casting our net too narrow. Do you think so? Even with that? Well, because there's been another special lockdown performance at an opera house in Barcelona. Okay. You see, since uh, Spain's strict coronavirus lockdown in mid-March, Nothing has happened, of course. Mm. But they have just recently played their first packed-out concert. All 2,291 seats in the five-gallery venue were taken. I really hope this takes a whimsical, happy turn at some point, because at the moment this just sounds horrifically dangerous. (laughs) Well, I I don't know quite how you pronounce it, but I think it's the Uceli or Uceli Quartet performed Puccini's Chrysanthemi. Okay. Now, as you have rightly pointed out, what about social distancing? What about masks? What about Mm -hmm. virus transmission? Yes. Well, they didn't need to do any social distancing at all because the entire audience was made up of pot plants. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) 
Conceptual now, artist Eugenio Ampudia put a pot plant on every single seat yes. in the entire auditorium. Because I'm backtracking now through the things you said. And, and I kind of got stuck on every seat was filled. Really? That many pot plants? It is one of the most random things you've ever seen. There's some great photos of it. It must have looked stunning. It did. This kind of foresty kind of look. And yet, in this beautiful old kind of Baroque style interior. Mm. Oh, please tell me it was kind of one of those red, gold and white. Oh, it's absolutely what you think it is. And it's like this five tier galleries of boxes. Yes. Okay. I need to get those pictures. It was gorgeous. What on earth did they do with 5,000 pot plants afterwards? (laughs) Well, the plants are going to be donated along with a certificate to show that they were part of the performance to health workers at the city's hospital clinic. Certificates to show that these are uniquely cultured plants. Included in the famous performance, yes. Yeah. (laughs) It was also live streamed to about 200,000 people via YouTube. Well, so there's that as well. So you can still see it on YouTube as well if you like. The whole thing. Now, this was covered in quite a few major news outlets, Mm. but they missed out some of the best details for me. The first was that the whole thing is followed by a a gentle round of applause (laughs) with the plant fronds kind of swaying backwards and forwards and you're hearing this kind of something a little bit like applause coming out. I don't know how quite how he did it. I think the moving of the plants was done by there being a fan behind the camera that was looking at the plants so that they're oh. just kind of waving the wind. <laughs> and they might have been playing some kind of noise out into the auditorium to make it seem like they were clapping. That's extremely good. Again, I approve. <laughs> but it's not my favourite bit. Really? Easily my favourite bit mm-hmm. was the announcement before the concert. Out of consideration for the audience and the performers, kindly switch off your mobile phones and refrain from taking pictures during the show. <laughs> oh, God. Although, actually, the keen-eyed viewers of the live stream will notice that there are still a few Blackberries out. No. <laughs> no. Hey. Oh, that's... that was exceptional. <laughs> I feel like your favourite moment of that joke was the half second before you got it. It was. It Everything was, went downhill from the... <laughs> well, the other thing I was thinking was that when I first looked at this video, Mm. It looked like there were no trays under the pot plants. Oh, right. And so I was thinking that this might actually have been a case where there wasn't a single dry seat in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of the things about getting older is that... I often find myself being shocked about how long things were ago. Right, yes. That kind of jaw-dropping realisation that something was 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. But just occasionally I have the opposite experience. Oh, really? Where I wish that something was longer ago than it actually was. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for me, those realisations at the moment just centre around decades. That the 60s were 80 years ago now. Yes, Yes. They weren't. They were 60. But still, <laughs> that was an honest mistake. I just... <laughs> and that was an honest, total lack of realisation that your math was completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to tea break number 73. <laughs> there you go. Or even the kind of 90s stuff mm. to people being born now will be 
what 60s stuff was to me. Yeah. And that's insane to me. That's yeah. completely unintelligible. <laughs> I'm beginning to slowly see why oldies stations are so popular. Were especially so popular when I was growing up in the States. It's a place you can go where nothing's changed. It's not about <laughs> throwback. It's about I'm still there. Yeah. And I want the world to be there too. Mm. Um, I don't think I've come across ones that work in the opposite direction. I, I'm very curious to know what these are for you. Well, the reason it works in the opposite direction is, you see, it's a facepalm that I have trouble believing happened so recently. Oh, I'm very much looking forward to this. <laughs> Just 12 short years ago, during a time when I knew slightly less which end of a microphone to point at things, <laughs> I uh, was approached to do a recording of a local youth choir, the Cambridge and Peterborough Youth Choir. Excellent. It's a good name. In fact, you'll remember it was Julia Callick. Oh, yes. Wonderful choir leader and choir teacher. Now, she wasn't actually directing this choir, but she knew me and just tapped me up as to whether I'd come along and record it. Okay. Now, to be brutally frank, mm -hmm. I was not really qualified to record this choir. Okay. But following the general mantra of freelance career development... Of course I said yes, I'd be happy to do it. It's <laughs> yes. right in my wheelhouse. You get qualified at it by doing it. That's the whole code. I mean, in all seriousness, there is a lot to be said for that approach. Mm -hmm. You know, you do stuff because you think you should be able to do it rather than because you've actually done it or are sure that you can do it. So anyway, I signed up and it was going to be a couple of days recording in a local church with this youth choir. I thought, you know, how difficult can it be? It's just a choir in a church. Mm -hmm. Now... Already on the session, there were various curveballs that I was hit with. <laughs> you know, I was assured by the director that, oh, well, it would just be doing like mostly complete takes. There won't be much editing. And it <laughs> very rapidly descended into <laughs> a massive editing fest. Oh, goodness me. Where was the venue? Where were you recording this? It was a church somewhere in Cambridge. I can't remember which one. So a not negligible amount of tail and reverb and stuff to be chopping around. Oh, plenty of... Bloom and mm -hmm. <laughs> ambience. And the other unexpected curveball had, I suppose curveballs are almost always unexpected, um, <laughs> was <laughs> the other curveball was that in this church I had not been informed that they would be using drums. What? And an electronic keyboard along with the choir. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I kind of knew that there would be soloists and I had spot mics available. Mm. But then when I turned up, I realized that I was having to deal with like, a, even like a djembe eats everything. <laughs> <laughs> when it's played in a church. And there was this massive kind of fight trying to get it so that it wasn't like a, a djembe concerto with... A couple of backing singers. Yes. Right. Okay. So, anyway. I'm, I'm actually getting anxious even just hearing you describe this recording <laughs> session. All that aside, as I usually do whenever I'm recording things, I'm usually experimenting with something while I'm doing the job. Naturally. And so I was using this weird kind of... Decker tree thing with an MS in the middle and some spot mics and everything. So I decided, okay, what I'll do mm. is I'll multi-track it, mm -hmm. but I'll also do a, like a backup director stereo as well. Okay, yeah. So on top of all these curveballs was also this really slightly too complicated recording <laughs> setup that I'd expect for myself in my kind of youthful enthusiasm. Okay. But, you know, I got it all up and running. It was all a bit Heath Robinson, to be honest. And I think it looked a bit Heath Robinson too. And it didn't help that the <laughs> choir director 
he just seemed a little bit judgmental. Maybe it was just me imposing this on him just because I felt a bit self-conscious about the whole thing. <laughs> you had some of your own imposter syndrome along with. Yeah, I was Oh, I was heavily under a deep blanket of imposter syndrome at that point. <laughs> and so I was being super paranoid about checking that everything worked and whatever else. It got everything up and running. It seemed to be going fine. Mm. We did pretty much a whole day of takes. And then we came back the following day to do some pickups and bits and pieces and patch some bits. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just have a listen back to what we did yesterday and see how it's sounding on the multitrack. What a good idea. How prudent of you. And so I played back a bit that we'd just been doing. And I was only hearing, I think, one of the spot mics. Yeah. I could see the information there on the track. Okay. Because I was using it like a hardware multitracker. But I was only hearing one of the mics. Okay. And it's that horrible bottom falling out of your stomach feeling. We've talked about it before in this section. Oh, the cold sweat thing. I mean, so, okay, at this moment, my mind would be going to, oh, God, have I sent this one microphone to every single track? I checked that one out. And? But it wasn't that. Okay. It was because, and again, this is kind of the lesson I've learned from it, right? Okay. It was because... I made the mistake of using the machine's solo buttons to audition different microphones and check for problems and things while we were recording. Okay, that sounds like good practice. And normally that seems fine. But in that particular machine, the solo system didn't work as you normally would, and I hardly ever used it. Right. I assumed it would work as it normally does and just let you listen. In being post-recording. Yeah. But actually, the solo function worked by muting all the other channels. Oh, God! <laughs> so the whole time I've been going through to kind of furiously checking whether things worked and I'd just been destroying all the multitracks. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Remixing them on the fly, making your spot mics that much spottier by cutting out everything else. Oh, and like, I don't know. God. In the times that I've recorded, I've found there's a very direct correlation between the number of musicians I'm telling that I've messed up <laughs> and kind of the intensity of my feeling when I have to tell them I've messed up. Yes. So for example, if it's just a drummer in a room mm. who gets through a song and I say, oh, you know what? This is totally my bad. I set the gain way too high on this overhead. Yeah. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. That's fine. A band, it's awkward. Uh huh. A chamber ensemble. <laughs> I, I start to crawl into a, a jumper and die. But you're missing out a couple of important variables here. Oh, yeah. One important variable is how much stuff you've recorded before you've realised it's cocked up. <laughs> there is that. And how long it took them to plan this thing in advance. And also, I just thought of a fourth variable. Mm -hmm. How feasible it is to reschedule the session. Right, yeah. Now, in this case, they'd been planning it for months. Mm -hmm. We'd done a whole day's worth of recording, which had been a little bit fraught anyway because of all the recording problems. I'd forgotten that this was after day one. And because of all the descending into editing hell and everyone getting a bit fraught by it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this was the end of year CD that they were doing for that group of kids who, of course, never would get back together again because it was the end <laughs> oh of the year. God, my word. <laughs> so it was like, you see the grave opening up before you like a big hole in the ground, like Blackadder says. Is this when you reveal that 12 years ago your name was Martin Green? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, you've since just run away. That This whole story <laughs> happened actually in Venezuela. Um, and you'll never go back there. Well, you know, this is sometimes the way with face palms and general professional disasters, that sometimes the tiniest wafer-thin sliver of good luck is all that stands between you and utter catastrophe. I want tenterhooks, yes. And the sliver of good luck was 
that I was so paranoid about the whole thing and so keen to kind of impress mm. that I was trying to create as good a sounding a mix as I could in stereo for them to listen to in the control room. Oh. And that I was recording as a backup. <sighs> Oh, my, my toes can uncurl for the first time in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, of course, I'm thinking back and thinking, God, was there any point where I was, like, rebalancing it or whatever while, while we were recording? But basically, <laughs> the stereo backup became the master. Ooh. And that, of course, was a live stereo backup that I was doing in, in like, a church vestry on headphones. <laughs> so yeah. so it, was, it wasn't the best mix <laughs> I've ever done, but it was a hell of a lot better than the mix that soloed the Jemby mic. <laughs> Incredible. And... They never knew. Well, I, this was going to be my next question. <laughs> How much of this epic quest did you take your employer on? It's such a difficult one because in so many situations, I'm very much an advocate for, like, fess up, get it out of the way and, and move on. Mm -mm -mm. But it just felt like one of these situations that it was almost like it was too big to fail. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like everything is wrong with this if this falls over. I've got to kind of make this work. And so I just tried to style it out. But it was honestly touch and go. Right. I had to do some fairly ninja stereo processing work at some points to try and rebalance stuff that I only had the stereo file for. Right. Oh, because they would obviously just say, oh, can we just have a bit more of this soloist? Yeah, exactly. Can we have a, a little bit less djembe? And it's like, <laughs> um, yeah, I'll just pull down that channel. <laughs> the thing with these waveforms is that they're organic. <laughs> and with organic waveforms, you've got to be careful about the uh, dynamism. Yeah. Um, but somehow... It managed to work. Yep. Certainly not my finest hour, but a product was released. You got it done. And you know what? That's the thing. I think you you would have got there even without the backup, even if it had meant renting out the church a week later and standing <laughs> in each position, doing your best falsetto and your best contralto tenor yep. bass, yep. then your best djembe playing, you know, just with headphones on. Mm -hmm. But it has left me with a lasting, almost allergic reaction so that now, whenever I'm actually recording something, mm. I find it really, really difficult to touch anything. Really? Even if I'm sure that hitting the solo button isn't going to do anything odd. Right. I just have this visceral thing that I never want to touch anything while it's recording. Yeah. No matter what it is. I relate. I really do. That kind of just... <laughs> look, if I don't touch anything, I can't touch anything wrong. Yes. And I mean, there are so many situations when you're recording and it's useful to be able to do it, but I have to fight myself to do it. It's like, <laughs> if I'm recording a band or something, often when the first take's going down, mm -hmm. you're, you're working on the monitor mix so that when they come in, it sounds as good as possible because mm. that's a big deal when you're doing any kind of session like that mm. but whenever i do it i'm having to kind of fight my own internal thing of going no it'll be fine it's just the one take if it goes wrong <laughs> you can always apologize just for the one take yeah there you go but with that kind of larger question of when to fess up and when to fix it quietly mm. i think i've moved over the last few years i used to be very much a kind of as soon as you figure it out what's happened go to the musical director whoever kind of my next up is and be like hey this has happened We'll work on it, but this has happened. Mm. As I've um, done a few more directing, musical directing gigs, I'm actually now massively a favour of the other approach. <laughs> Don't give that to me. <laughs> work your ass off, fix it, and then if I never notice, I'm chuffed. Yeah. If I never have to know until two years later when we're having a drink, and you're like, incidentally, did you know? <laughs> like, and you just feel the breeze of the bullet passing you. There you go. One night when we were doing this 
play, I actually forgot my costume. Oh, wow. And we had to play it off this way or the other way or whatever. Then, then yeah, that's how I would prefer you to let me know. <laughs> well, I mean, it was quite a fraught session, so I can imagine that um, fur would have flown. <laughs> Should honesty have prevailed. Yeah, yeah. Not my proudest moment, but uh, things were learnt. Absolutely. They were takeaways. Absolutely. Now, not only has Nick brilliantly face-slapped us both, <laughs> he has also provided us with this month's Q&A question, which is a corker. His question is short and sweet and very relevant. How do you keep an energetic sax player still in front of the mic? Mike, you were kind enough to send me this yesterday, and I'm embarrassed to admit how much of my mental real estate it has occupied since then um, and also how few good ideas I have given the amount of time I spent thinking about it. Mm. My first thought is that a good sax player, a good trumpet player will often have this uncanny ability to move around in front of a microphone mm. whilst keeping the bell of their instrument exactly equidistant to the mic as if it was kind of attached there with a piece of string Yes, and that their body can move and the instrument can move but the actual bell points exactly the same place which gives me the idea of use a piece of string. Yes! Tie a piece of string between the, the bell of the instrument yeah. and the microphone and then say, move as much as you like. Or do you think if you wanted a more permanent solution, you could set up some kind of a hinged system? A hinged system? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like a mic stand. It sits there and has a hinged clamp. Right, right, yeah. A saxophonist flange that bolts to the instrument. <laughs> I mean, there's also those cages, which are more commonly used for exotic dancers in that kind of club. And you can just put a saxophonist in one of them. Oh, oh, it's come to me. Tell me. Speaking of cages, I was thinking poles. You had the dream theatre keyboardist. <gasps> you could have the same kind of body harness for the saxophonist. <laughs> you mean to stick them on a pole? Kind of, yeah. So that they can they can wriggle. Yeah, but not change the distance from the mic. I think, I think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I could see that working. I mean, I wondered whether this might actually be an acoustics problem. Tell me more. Well, you see, I think if you got a saxophonist in a sufficiently soundproof booth mm. that was well insulated from external air vibrations and you just packed every available crevice to stop air getting in or out, mm. then I think the saxophonist after a while would, would move less and less. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting thought. The intersection of acoustics and behavioural science. I think you may be right. A possibly slightly more humane approach to that same problem. Tie a big rock to the bottom of the saxophone. Oh, just weigh them down. Just weigh it down to the point where moving it is more hassle than it's worth. And they can kind of dance around behind it, uh, but the saxophone won't move because there's a big rock tied to it. Well, I like that idea, but I wonder whether we could live the psychology here. Okay, tell me more. I mean, this is difficult with sax, though, because sometimes you want to mic a sax player not from right on the end of their instrument, particularly in a studio situation. You don't necessarily get the best sound there. Mm. I think this is part of the issue of this question, is that there are some instruments you have to mic from a place that doesn't feel like the intuitively right place to the person who's playing. Yeah. And so you want to keep them pointing in the same direction so you can mic them from somewhere else. Yes. And the tendency is then always to play directly into the microphone, as they would on stage. Yeah. So in reality, I find myself setting up a dummy mic. Mm. I have a mic that they play into and the mic that I record them with. Right, interesting. When looking after chickens... 
you will occasionally put a little pile of corn on the ground and they'll be so interested pecking in that that you can kind of check their feet and get a burr out, say, without them even noticing. Yes. It feels like a very similar approach. You want to get an expensive looking ribbon mic in front of them and then they'll be so focused in that Mm. you can put up the other mics wherever you need to. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense to me. And the other thing is that you could leverage some psychology there. Okay. You could say, well, you know, we realise that your part is absolutely vital to this production. So we've so we've got this mic especially right here by the instrument mm-hmm. to make sure that we catch you as clearly and cleanly as possible. And obviously it's vital if we're going to keep you in your place in the mix that you stay right up against the microphone. Mm-hmm. Because if you move back, we just might lose you. The music will be dead. But of course, actually, it's the mic that's like a foot and a half away that's really recording them. I like that a lot. I mean, if we're talking about psychology then we could use that beautiful trick that I get through most of my life with passive aggression. (laughs) Um, Namely, I hate it when people talk over TV shows or movies that we're watching together. Oh, right. I like talking to people, but don't talk because then we miss stuff and then there's just no. Yes. And so my approach to that could be to say, please don't talk to her, but no, absolutely not. Instead, if we're watching something together and you say even, oh, I like this actor. Yeah. I will immediately get the remote. I will pause what's on TV. (laughs) Then I will turn to you, give you my full attention, physically and otherwise, and I'll say, sorry, what was that? (laughs) I thought you might go, um, no, that's really interesting because I saw him in so-and-so and he was great. And you just go to this massive thing that then lasts 15 minutes and then you refuse to drop the subject. Wait, let's pull up his IMDB page. Let's see what else. Yeah, that's the idea. That might be just as effective. Instead, I just let a great yawning chasm open up in front of you. Mm. So you say, oh, I quite like this actor. And I'll say, "Mm mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and just let you kind of gaze into the abyss and then I'll say oh okay and I'll turn my body around and I'll start it again and anytime you breathe a word you'll have to endure one of those the abyss of passive aggression which makes me think you don't even say anything about staying still or moving to the saxophonist it's just that the moment they kind of shift a bit to the left then from the recording room, you shout, oh, freeze, freeze, sorry, stay exactly there, thank you so much. You come through, you spend five minutes readjusting all the mics. <gasps> you go back in, you hit play. That is genius. <laughs> and in fact, actually, I don't think you'd have to spend that long. You just immediately press stop and then walk into the room. Yeah, sorry, I didn't realise, it's all my fault. And then just like move the mic like three inches. <laughs> and they go, what, what was the problem? Oh, it's just you moved, so I had to move the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> follow them. I thought you were going to be playing in the position that you were in and you found a new one, which is great. I hope that one's comfortable for you. Uh, We can start again now. That is so powerful. Absolutely. And if they try and say sorry, then it's like, oh, no, 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 no. No, this is just about capturing you as well as possible. I think that's the torturous way to do it. (laughs) You passive aggressive ninja. (laughs) Oh, virtuoso. You've made it out of bed. You've made it down the stairs. You have a cup of tea in your hand. What a better accompaniment for that moment in your life than this beautifully toasted slice of bread? (laughs) First off, brilliant audio. (laughs) Second off, 
magnificent visual experience for me just there. <laughs> I would say that sounds not just like toast, but that sounds like some thinly sliced, slow toasted rye bread. Mm, yeah, it's definitely a different texture. The kind of bread that you don't toast in a toaster. God, no, you do in the Roman way that you put it in a pan with just the tiniest bit of olive oil. And it should take <laughs> 10 to 15 minutes. No, I'm, mm. I'm not even joking. It's a labour of love. You just gently pull the moisture out of it and place it with olive oil. Then you, you bite down. Mm. Sounded delicious. Looked horrible. <laughs> what were you eating? Well, you see, I'm on a roll of discovering uses for things that no one ever had a use in the world for. <laughs> you know when you get a box of chocolates? Mm -hmm. There's that little layer of crinkly, plasticky, papery stuff on top, mm. supposedly to protect the chocolates. Mm. Yeah. And it's that little thing. Oh. So I just bit that rather randomly. <laughs> Demonstrably the least delicious part of a box of chocolates. At the moment you were holding that, you must have been near a box of chocolates. But you decided to bite on the cushiony wax paper thing. You know what? We just try stuff. Um, there doesn't have to be any reason or rhyme. Which actually allows me to segue rather handily into this month's jam. That was very smooth of you. Thank you so much. No chunks in this jam. <laughs> so this month, I want to highlight the work of someone called Alex Bainter. Okay. Who creates various audio experiences. Okay. So some of my favourite of Alex's work includes corruption loops okay which allows you to record a short loop of audio mm. which then loops back to you through a copy paste system which slowly corrupts the file yeah and over this time of listening to it it will eventually become white noise okay so this is an homage to William Basinski's disintegration loops I was gonna say yeah which we have featured here on this very podcast and I have made clear is one of my favorite pieces of music of all time mm. more specifically and, and what we, I really want to focus focus on is Alex's generative.fm. Generative.fm. So this is a collection of different generative instruments. Oh, right. For anyone who's, who's not super familiar with generative music, Brian Eno, um, of course, defined it as something that never repeats exactly mm. and goes on forever. Right. So the experience of listening to it, you can't come to an end point and it can't just be the same thing round and round and round again. And you can never hear it all. Yeah. And so... You know, early experiments involve things like asynchronous loops. Okay, yeah. That if you have something that happens once every four seconds and once every five seconds, and that was fine for a little while, but then you realise that every 20 seconds that actually does repeat, you start at the top of the loop. Yeah. And um, because the ratio of four to five is rational, but there are irrational ratios. Ah. Um, and if you work in those ratios, then they will never actually... And, you know, it gets very mathy in that direction. Wow. And then, of course, we got to the point where we could offload a bunch of that randomness onto computers. Of course. And we could just tell them to restart a sample, say, every random number of seconds somewhere between 5 and 10. Mm -hmm. And then be confident that we wouldn't get exact repeats with our different loops. Indeed. But anyway, there's a number of instruments here. They're all beautiful. And for me... Having come from my last addictive listen being, of course, Neon Skyline by Andy Schauf, hmm. and celebrating and enjoying the craft, and I cast around looking for something else. It's that horrible kind of dark tea time of the soul that you get after you've experienced something really, really good, and you go, oh, crumbs, when's the next time I'm going to find something that good again? Exactly. And kind of you, you go back to old haunts, yeah. and, you know, stuff is good, but it's not really working for you. And I, mm. I found after Neon Skyline... I was just hearing too much of the intention behind everything. Mm -hmm. I was listening too hard to lyrics. I was listening too hard to references, musical quotes and stuff. Well, if you will listen to the Spice Girls, then <laughs> you're 
you're going to get that problem. Does friendship never end? Mel B? <laughs> and so this was absolutely the tonic. This is where I go now. This is the music that I have been binging because it's intentionless. Okay. It is systems, but it's not composition. Okay. It's called Generative FM out of this idea that it's almost like a radio station you just tune into. Okay. Every time you play one of these instruments, it starts in a totally different place to the last time you heard it. Right. And it being generative music, it will never repeat. So you can listen to it however long you like and it won't end. And then you just stop listening to it. Yeah. And it's very clever ways of, of slowly generating material. There's piano ones. There's more synthy ones. There's lots of great instruments. That sounds really cool. But yes, I've just been swimming in these different, slightly inhuman sounds. Is it a kind of a an aesthetic palate cleanser? It is. It's 300% an aesthetic palate cleanser. Mm. My favourite palate cleanser when I lived in London, I think I've even talked about it here on the podcast, was a concert series called Boat Ting. No, I don't think you did. Oh, Mike, it was incredible. It was my first exposure to this kind of music. It took place below decks on a boat moored on the strand. Wow. So it was completely dark, no windows, and gently rocking on the Thames. So you felt a bit drunk from the moment you started. Yeah. You sit at a table and order a beer and, uh, I don't know, a drummer, a singer, and an unusually high frequency of bass clarinetists, say, would come up as a group. Founded by bass clarinetists. <laughs> yes, there you go. The bass clarinetist visibility front. Yeah. And they would begin free improvising. Oh, right. Just kind of going crazy, just taking any angle, but with excellent musicianship. Yeah. After I'd been a few times, I realised that a lot of the people who came and played were the West End band musicians, the pit musicians. Oh, wow. So incredibly technically skilled, have just played the same 10 pieces every night for the last 20 years, and this is where they go to blow off steam. Yeah. Incredible energy. That's fabulous. So they'd start going crazy, and 45 minutes later, they would stop, and the next band would go up. (laughs) Great. And there would be no break in that time. And that's where I would go when I was sick of music making sense or if I'd managed to get into that hubristic place of thinking that I understood it all. Yeah. That I just got music, I'd got out to the edges. Yeah. And it was like a fire hose in the face. (laughs) It was my medicine. I really hope it's still going on, but I actually have no idea. I mean, that's a pretty good description of a bass clarinet, actually. (laughs) Fire hose to the face. It looks a bit like a fire hose in your face, isn't it? (laughs) Have you got palate cleansers, Mike? Have you got stuff what you go to to reset? I've wondered for a long time whether this is a reason why I tend not to listen to that much music when I'm not working now. Right. And I listen to more to podcasts. Mm-hmm. Speech radio might be the ultimate palate cleanser for me. Right, okay. And in fact, it has a kind of a mix referencing angle as well. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're mixing something, it helps to go and do something that you're used to the sound of. Mm-hmm. And the sound of going into my kitchen and boiling the kettle and making a cup of tea and putting BBC Radio 4 on, that's almost a more reliable mix reference than anything else because I've done it more than anything else. It centres your ears back on something that they really understand. Oh, that's really interesting. So my kettle has been a mix reference for a long time. I heard of mix references, but the idea of actually using kind of a domestic routine, a familiar setting as a mixed reference is really lovely. So do you ever, having worked on something for a long time, because, you know, this is how mixed references work for, for me anyway, you go in and you set the kettle to boil and you think, God, that sounds really bassy now. <laughs> I really need to check my EQ balance. I think it's more when you come back. Okay. You've made your cup of tea, you come back and hit play and go, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> 
Who is this guy who's gone on my recording and messed it all up? It is. But this generative music thing brings up an interesting discussion about what are the copyright implications here? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> you know, I mean, most copyright cases are based on the idea of taking a musical quotation and then showing its similarities with another musical quotation. Right. But if you can't take a musical quotation of something that never repeats, never does the same thing twice, then how are you supposed to build a case? You can't. Well, no. In fact, this reminds me, I think there was some guy who created a computer algorithm that he said could generate every possible melody and was attempting to claim some minuscule royalty of every song ever written. <laughs> I seem to remember there was someone who tried that stunt. I mean, why not if you got a Sunday with nothing to do? Is the copyright in the code there? You wouldn't be allowed to copy the code, but you'd be able to copy anything that came out of it. Mm. Or to put it another way, can you copyright a sausage or just the sausage machine? <laughs> <laughs> so in that case, as you know, you can copyright the machine and the branding. Mm. Recipes can't be copywritten, at least not in the UK. And I don't know about elsewhere. Mm. But here's the thing. If you have a generative sausage machine <laughs> that goes on forever and never makes the same kind of sausage twice. Yeah. Then, you know. But that's every sausage machine. Whoa. Because no two sausages are the same. <laughs> I'm not sure if we've just gone very deep or very stupid. They all have a certain... <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. They all have a certain sausageness to them. <laughs> They're all identifiable as a sausage, mm -hmm. but none of those sausages are categorically identical. So for me, that's less generative music. That's more... <laughs> Live sorry, and recorded. Sorry, I'm, I'm having difficulty concentrating because I just found myself imagining using the term the ideal platonic sausage. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. That's quite all right. Oh, dear. Just to take this a little further, could you describe your ideal platonic sausage? Uh, well, no, I couldn't describe it because it's an ideal. It's beyond language. I think you can get pretty close with like pork and sage and about 50% bread. I only ever see the shadow of the ideal platonic sausage on the wall. <laughs> Oh, God. Okay, so the obvious answer seems to me that you have copyright on any material that your generative instrument has produced. Yeah. Because that's your compositional stuff. But then how wide do you cast the net then? Well, how do you mean? Well, if a generative thing has an element of randomness in it, mm. then at what point do you get back to the argument that the guy tried to claim copyright on every song ever written? Well, yeah, that's a good question. And it links to the question of... Does the instrument have to have played something for you to maybe consider it yours? Or what if it just could? Wow. What if it was likely to? It has the potential to play it. Yeah. If I make an album entirely on MIDI and without headphones, without hearing it, and then I burn it to a CD and, you know, publish it, copyright it. Yeah. I believe that I can claim that music as mine. If someone else then writes the same song which appears on that CD, I can claim copyright violation, yeah. even though the music on my CD has never actually been played. Mm. It just has the potential to be played. So as long as you've set it in stone at some point, you've recorded it in some format that is released. I couldn't imagine hearing the argument made, well, my client didn't actually infringe their copyright because their song was never played out loud. Well, no, I've just got the prior copyright. It's published music. Yeah. But by that logic, it just has the potential to be played. And at that point, as you say, you, you just make a truly random generative instrument and then claim copyright on any piece of music that ever gets written from that point on. Well, you could just take a pragmatic stance on this. And I seem to remember this is one of the reasonings they used to shoot down that spurious copyright claim on every song I've written was like, OK, if we allow you to do that, mm. it just means that you're going to have to file all the paperwork to pay royalties to all those songs that were written before you created that algorithm. 
algorithm. Every preceding <laughs> song. Yes. And also, if your algorithm had the potential to infringe anyone else's copyright, <sighs> could it then be actionable? Oh, yes. Then it's already copyright infringement, even if you never play it. Yeah. Maybe questions like this is why these awesome projects exist on unmonetized corners of the internet <laughs> rather than on large kind of capitalist stages. Yeah. Sadly, the Jaffa Cake packet is now empty and we reach the end of our Project Studio Tea Break, but there is still time to thank our sponsor for this month, Sound Aesthetics, pioneers in the field of audio test signals. <laughs> Are you tired of the same old choice between white and pink noise? Mm -hmm. Well, they'll mix any colour your heart desires with their, <laughs> with their bespoke noise mixing service. Mm -hmm. So whether you want teal or fuchsia <laughs> or burnt sienna, just click the desired hue of noise on their website's Pantone chart and away you go. Mm -hmm. And if you, dear listener, would also like to support this independent podcast then you'll be pleased to hear that there are brand new patron extras on our Patreon page. Uh, we have the Joy of XG, oh, goodness the me. String Quartet for the End of Credulity, and Scones <laughs> with Marmite. Oh, Scones, yeah. Mm. Still have nightmares on that last one. So I was very excited to have these multicoloured sounds. I was wondering, because you've had a chance to sample more than I have, Mike, and of course... White noise is famous for being a bit sharp and abrasive. Mm. Pink noise for having a kind of more rich, um, rounded texture. I wonder if there are any other colours, any other favourites that you've sampled um, that you'd like to give a quick description of? Well, yes. Or even demonstration. You know, if, if you can do it with your mouth, then, you know, so much the better. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm just thinking, so the orange noise. Mm -hmm. Orange noise can be more like... <laughs> Obviously instantly recognisable. Yeah, sunburst noise. As I was scrolling through... <laughs> As I was scrolling through, I came against brown noise, which is kind of a... <laughs> well, the funny thing is, there is actually brown noise. <laughs> What's brown noise? There are actually other colours of noise, but white and pink. There's violet... There's grey, there's brown, and there's blue. Oh, see, now I want you to explain... Brown what... noise is short for Brownian noise. It's some kind of completely randomised noise signal that is unlike white noise for some reason. I don't know quite how it works. Okay. But I think it is much basier, as you'd kind of hope. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer your brown noise, though, to be honest. <laughs> Thank you. OK, here's a peek behind the curtain, which is vital stays in, because I really don't like toilet humour. <laughs> and my right. plan was to make just kind of a lispy rubbish noise and make that be brown. Mm. But um, because, you know, this is the only section of the podcast that isn't fully scripted uh, and rehearsed, <laughs> so I hadn't had a chance to do it before... Then when I did it, it just sounded like a really bad fart and, and I felt very uncomfortable straight away and, and it was awful. Um, but I kind of felt overcommitted to the bit at that point. So apologies to anyone who, like me, does just not cotton to that sort of thing. Well, if you would like to complain about John's execrable conduct... <laughs> <laughs> then do email us at tbreak at projectstudiotbreak.com And if you'd like to drop us a face or a tweet, we are on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash pstbbooks and twitter.com forward slash pstbtweets. We can be found at both those places and of course also on TikTok at pstbticks for Team Davic. Hi, David. And pstbtocks for Team Barry, Mike's much, much more popular account. Anything of your own, John, you wanted to plug? Oh, actually, yes. 
So, my first ever piece of lockdown theatre. Ooh! Which I directed with Babylon Theatre, a wonderful uh, young actors company uh, based in the southeast, uh, is coming out, is being released, is being premiered on the 31st. Uh, you can find us on Babylon Theatre, B A B O L I N Theatre, uh, on Instagram or on Twitter, or our website, babylontheatre.weebly, W E B L Y.com. I'm telling you all these links because we haven't got our ticket site set up yet. (laughs) But the details of it will be published on all those channels just as soon as it exists. Um, So it would be lovely to see some of you there. On the 31st, we're doing a lounge meet and greet with the cast and crew as well. So if you're available, do come along to that. It would be lovely to see you. So is this going to be kind of a live stream thing? No, because I don't like those. (laughs) So instead, we've gone for cinematic theatre or theatrical cinema. I haven't decided which yet. Yeah. The heart of the piece is a 1891 Alfred Jarry play called King Ubu, (laughs) (laughs) which is ridiculous and gross. It it caused a riot. Wow. The very first time it was um, performed. Well, like all the best things. Which was also, the very last time it was performed <laughs> um, in Jerry's lifetime, it had a total run of one night. And we've kind of created a, uh, if you know your British theatre, a punch drunk vibe. It's a bit choose your own adventure. Okay. A bit interactive with these different short films. There's songs, there's dances, there's puppetry. There's all sorts of nonsense. So um, do drop by. Sounds like great stuff. Okay. Thank you so very much for listening. Thank you for joining us one time again. And until next time. Tara pets. Tara.